Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, you are a great God, and our ability to praise you and adequately describe your glory is simply insufficient. We need better words. We need better hearts, better voices, because you deserve all the glory. You deserve to be loved, to be treasured, to be pursued, to be worshipped, to be obeyed, to be trusted. So, Lord, our songs that we have sung this morning They help us to communicate our need. They help us to rehearse your glory and your goodness, the greatness of your deeds. Lord, we recognize that this morning our great need is to behold you, to see you for who you are. And we know that your desire is to reveal yourself to us, to to reveal your glory and your goodness, to show us Christ, that we might be changed. Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Help us to set aside distractions. Help us to set aside our concerns, the burdens, the griefs, even the joys that we bring into this room with us. I pray that you would give us a single mind, a single focus this morning. You would give us eyes that see, ears that hear as we gaze into your truth. Lord, we know that In order to do this, we need the help of your spirit, so we ask for that now, and we ask in faith, knowing that that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to convict us of sin, and to illuminate the word, and to glorify Christ. So Lord, accomplish your will in us and among us for your glory this morning. Amen. It's a joy to be back. Um, I think I've preached once out of the last five weeks. It's been wonderful for me to sit under good preaching and to hear others Um, fill this pulpit and speak God's word, but I'm excited to get back into the saddle this morning. And I was reminded this week of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. It's a familiar text. It simply says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Scripture speaks to us with eternal authority. Eternal relevance. I don't have to add anything to it to make it the thing that we need most today. And this eternal word speaks to us of an eternal God. It is our great duty, our great joy, our great need to know him. And that's really what our passage in Exodus chapter 33 is all about today. If you're a note taker, here's the single point. The most desperate need of God's people is God himself. Carrie knew that. That's why he picked all these songs today. Thank you, Carrie. Stole all the thunder from the message. But the greatest need of God's people is God himself. That's true for every one of us. For you, whether you're a child, whether you're 87, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you feel like everything in your life is falling apart, or whether you feel like nothing could possibly be better, you need God. This is true not only for us, but also for Moses and the nation Israel In the Exodus. To catch you back up to speed, since it's been a few weeks, we're picking up the story here right on the heels, right in the aftermath of a tragic failure. The nation of Israel had been rescued from Egypt and they'd been drawn near to Mount Sinai. And there they had entered into a covenant with their God, a binding agreement, a relational connection with the God who had redeemed them. God gave them his law and they in turn pledged their obedience to him. That covenant was ratified. 
And then following this, Moses had gone back up on the mountain to meet with God to receive further instructions on exactly how this God wanted them to worship. He gave instructions on the tabernacle and the priests and the sacrifices and all those things. But as you know, in chapter 32, we saw that the people grew tired of waiting for Moses. After 40 days, they grew anxious. They got frustrated. They were eager to get their religious matters as a new nation figured out, sort of put in place so that they could move on towards the promised land. They didn't want to stay here at Canaan for the rest, or here at Mount Sinai for the rest of their lives. They, they wanted to go to Canaan. And they want a God, furthermore, that they can see a God that they can touch, a God who would be in their midst. So they demand that Aaron, Moses' brother, who had been left in charge, make them gods. You guys know the familiar story. This is the big train crash of the book of Exodus. Moses, or Aaron rather takes gold as they donate their earrings and he fashions a golden calf and the people cry out, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God's wrath is aroused by this betrayal, this rebellion. The people in doing this were doing more than just breaking one of his rules. They were forsaking his covenant, violating his law, and rejecting him as their God. And it's only Moses' prayers that kept the people from being wiped out completely. As we saw last time together, Moses came down, he dealt with their sin, he destroyed the idol, he rebuked Aaron. And we saw that several thousand people were even put to death by the sword. And still others were impacted by a great plague as there were consequences for their sin. And the nation had to be purified. On the heels of that, we find a nation that is now contrite, a nation that has been humbled, a nation that is repentant. But it raises the question, where do they go from here? What's next after this? That brings us to chapter 33. There's three sections this morning as we sort of unfold this story. And at the end, I'd like to draw out some principles for us. But in verses 1 through 6, to sort of summarize this first movement, you could call it a disastrous word. This disastrous word starts in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. God tells them, Moses, say to the people, Depart, go up from here, but... I will not go up among you. God confirmed to the people that he still intends to keep his ancient promise to Abraham. He is going to bring them into the land that's flowing with milk and honey. This, that's a sort of a poetic description of a land that is fruitful, a land that is bountiful, way better than this desert that they're in right now. 
at the foot of the mountain. It's the land of Canaan. And even though it's inhabited, God would give them victory over their enemies and give them the land. And this isn't a new thing. This has been a promise for centuries. But there's a startling new development here. God signals to them that he will not now personally go up with them. Verse 3. I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This is a costly consequence of their sin. They violated God's law. They rejected him as their Lord. They made graven images and bowed down to them. And their sin had brought a separation from God. And sin always does that. Whether it's in the Garden of Eden, as as Adam and Eve are forced to leave, they can no longer dwell with God in the garden. Or whether it's here at Mount Sinai. Or whether it's in eternity. Sin always separates us from God. But there's also a note in here, an expression of mercy. This is actually a necessity, but it's a tragic necessity Because if God were to continue with them, since they're so stubborn, so spiritually rebellious, he describes them like livestock that are stiff-necked that won't accept the yoke of their master. God said if he were to remain among them, his holiness would consume them. He says it twice in verse 3 and in verse 5. It's a serious danger. What that means here is that God is doing this for their own good. It's actually for their protection. God's not like some pouting girlfriend who gives her boyfriend the silent treatment and says, well, I'm not going to hang out with you. I'm not going to talk to you. No, God does not want to destroy them. He loves these people despite their sin. And it's because of that love, because of his desire to not consume them with his wrath that he says, I cannot go up among you. My holiness would consume you if I did. And the people respond in verse four with mourning. They mourn. They heard this disastrous word, this announcement that God was no longer going to go up among them. And they mourned. It says, no one put on his ornaments. Why did the people mourn? You might say they still get the land, right? I mean, they're still going to get to go to Canaan. They're still going to have victory. They're still going to enjoy the bounty of the promised land. And to be honest, many people today, perhaps even some here, would be more than happy to get all of God's blessings and actually not have to worry about an ongoing relationship with God. But these people recognize that this shocking turn of events is actually the unraveling of something that God had intended. Just to remind you of Exodus chapter 23 and verse 20, God had told them that he would go up with them. He said, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And notice what God says about this angel in verse 21. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. You see, there are spiritual beings God has created to be his servants. We know them as angels. The word angel means messenger. But sometimes God does his own work. Sometimes God represents himself. Sometimes God is his own messenger. And what God had told the people is that this angel would have God's name in him. It's actually the second person of the triune Godhead. The pre-incarnate Christ would be with them. God himself would be the one leading them. In Exodus chapter 29, we see God's intentions for the tabernacle. Verse 45, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. 
You see, God had told them that he would be with them personally and that his purpose in redeeming them was that he might dwell in their midst and be among them. But now all that is forfeit. There would be an angel go with them here in chapter 33, verse 2. He says, I will send an angel before you, but it's not the angel of the Lord. The plans for the tabernacle are also now on hold. There will be no tent in their midst, no altar for sacrifice, no basin for washing, no bread of the presence, no light from the lampstand, no incense for prayer, no ark representing his indwelling presence. That's why Calvin calls this turn of events a divorce more fatal than innumerable deaths. God would not be with them. And so they mourn. They strip off their ornaments in an outward expression of the inward grief that they felt. Just like people today often wear dark muted colors to a funeral. And it would be inappropriate to wear you know, a Hawaiian shirt or, or some sort of gaudy gown that draws attention to yourself. The people seek to even dress in a way that shows their grief. And this is not self-pity. This is righteous regret. These people are sad in the right way for the right reasons. They know that get, just getting God's protection and getting his provision, but losing God himself was a tragic loss. And so while they had previously taken off their jewelry in order to make a false god to worship, now they are taking off their jewelry in an expression of repentance towards the true God. But notice what God says in verse 5. The Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments. Now notice this that I may know what to do with you. God's commandment to to mourn and to grieve comes with an open-ended statement. He says, that I may know what to do with you. You might say, what does that mean? Because God knows everything. And his plan is perfect. He's never been surprised. He's never been confused. God's never been stumped for a single moment in history. God's never been plagued by indecision. So God's not scratching his head here. These words rather indicate that things are actually still up in the air. The book is not sealed. This conversation about what's going to happen with these people is not yet over, and the door is actually being left cracked open. Now, this would have, I think, done two things. First of all, it would have inspired fear. In a sense, God is saying, like a parent disciplining his child, I'm not done with you. Perhaps more judgment was to come. It was certainly deserved. But I think these words also hold out hope. God is saying, I'm not done with you. Perhaps there's still an opportunity to seek his mercy. The final judgment has not been rendered. There's still hope that perhaps this won't be the last word. This disastrous word in verses 1 through 6 is followed up in verses 7 through 11 as we see sort of fleshed out the consequences. We see a distant God. A distant God in verses 7 through 11 says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. Important words there, far off. And he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. 
when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend. That's that glorious uh, display of God's presence. And this pillar of cloud would stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. Then Moses turned again into the camp, and his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So God says, I cannot dwell among you. I will not go up among you. But thankfully, God had not completely forsaken his people. And Moses still has access to God. This tent of meeting that's referred to here, it's not the same thing as the tabernacle. This is simply a place where God uh, agreed to meet with Moses. God didn't require Moses, thankfully, to climb Mount Sinai every time they needed to have a conversation. God had withdrawn from the people, but... While he is far off, Moses still has access. Moses has spoken with God at the burning bush back in chapter 3. He had spoken with God on the top of Mount Sinai, and now he speaks with God here in this sort of prototype, a, a preview of the tabernacle. And it says he speaks with God face to face. And as we'll see later, this must be sort of a figure of speech. This is a, an idiom we find throughout Scripture that's sort of a, a simple way of saying in person, up close and personal. Moses speaks to God in his presence in this tent. And you can sort of imagine here as, as Moses describes the situation in these verses that all of the eyes of the people in the camp The people who have taken off their ornaments, the people who are mourning, their eyes are straining to see from a distance, wondering what sort of high-level negotiations are going on in the tent. What's going to happen? They know that their future hangs in the balance. They had written Moses off before. They said, as for this Moses, who knows what's become of him? They gave up on Moses when he was at the top of Mount Sinai. They assumed he wasn't coming back. But now they see him speaking with God, and they know that he's the only one who might be able to remedy their situation. He's their mediator. God had left the door open, and Moses was the only one who could walk through it, the only one who could perhaps appeal this disastrous word that had been spoken. We don't have to watch from a distance and wonder what was said in the tent. We're actually brought right into the tent in the following verses, and we get to listen in on Moses' conversation with God. And this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning. The distant or the disastrous word in verses one through six leads to a distant God in verses seven through 11. But then Moses comes into the presence of this God, and he offers a desperate prayer. Desperate prayer in verses 12 through 23. And it's sort of a dialogue here. It's a back and forth. We'll walk through it together. Moses' first request is in verses 12 through 13. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. 
What we find here is that Moses is greatly troubled by this disastrous word as well. It's not just the people who are shocked and who are grieved by this turn of events. You see, Moses knows that God has personally been with him really since day one. All the way back in Exodus chapter 3, God had called Moses, speaking from this burning bush, and said, I want you to go to Egypt. I'm going to use you to, to lead my people out of slavery. And Moses had said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, but I will be with you. I will be with you. Those were God's words to Moses before this whole thing started. And Moses knew that while there was a lot that lay behind them, interactions with Pharaoh, miraculous plagues in, in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, leading them through the wilderness, an encounter on Mount Sinai, Moses knew that even more lay ahead. They weren't done yet. God had said previously that his angel, in fact, an angel, a messenger, a representative who bore his name, would go with them. But Moses recognizes now it's just an anonymous angel. He says, you have not let me know, verse 12, whom you will send with me. Moses recognizes that he doesn't have the personal presence of God guaranteed anymore. And he needs to know. He says, God, I need to know, am I on my own? Who is it that will be with me? He knows he can't lead the people by himself. And the phrase here, found favor in your sight, we see it a few times in this text, is an expression throughout scripture that signifies that God has sovereignly showed grace upon one whom he desires to bless. He says, I have found favor in your sight. You know my name. You love me. You've chosen me. We have a personal connection. And, and you've taken this gracious position towards me. And so Moses is wrestling with this. He knows that's true. But he says, how does that square with this disastrous word of judgment? How does you knowing my name, loving me, choosing me, and, and, and choosing to show grace to me, how does that fit with pulling away, leaving us on our own? So he wrestles with this. Verse 12, God knows Moses. He knows his name. But Moses wants to know God. Verse 13, he continues, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, if that's really true, he says, please show me now your ways that I may know you. Show me your ways. You see here the heart of Moses that he desires to not be distant from his God, but, become, but to become more and more personally acquainted with him. You see, in order to serve God effectively, Moses needed to know him intimately. He says, show me your ways that I may know you. In knowing God's ways, Moses would be able to communicate to the people more about this God whom they were to worship, serve, and obey. Moses knew that a people who were ignorant of their God would always fall short of worshiping him and serving him. He says, show me your ways that I may know you. In order to find favor in your sight, consider too that this nation is your people. He slips in this final detail in verse 13 about the nation. You see, in verse 1, they were called the people whom you have brought up, God speaking to Moses. That's a very impersonal description, isn't it? The people whom you have brought up. And in verse 12, they are called this people. But once again, as their mediator, Moses reminds God, Lord, they are your people. They are your people, and we need you. We need you. 
God had chosen Israel. He had made them numerous. He had rescued them from Egypt. He had entered into this covenant with them. So Moses' appeal here is based on God's character. Lord, your grace towards me, your love towards me, and your grace towards this people, your love towards them, your purpose of redemption for them as a nation. And so he appeals, Lord, who will go with us? We need you. We need to know you. God gives him assurance in verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Although God had announced a disastrous word to Israel, he gives his servant Moses the assurance that he needed in order to lead them into the promised land. He says, my presence will go with you. Literally here, my face. This is personal. He's saying, I will be with you, Moses, It won't just be any old angel. This won't be long distance support. I will go with you personally. God would be with him as an individual, as a leader. And what's the result of this? He says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. He says, be at peace, Moses. No need to fret, no need to worry, no need to fear. I will be with you as you lead them. And I will give you, as my servant, rest. This is good news. The fact that God had left the door cracked open allowed Moses to appeal and to make intercession. And God is showing his graciousness, his mercy, by assuring Moses, I will be with you, Moses. But Moses presses for more in verse 15 through 16. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? If Moses' first request could be summarized as, be with me, this second request, he pushes for more. He says, be with us. I love the urgency and the focus of Moses here. He says, if you don't go with us, if you won't be with us, then don't even send us away. It'd be better to stay here and live out the rest of our days at Mount Sinai. And again, this is amazing to me because most people are more than happy to get all of God's protection, all of his provision, victory over enemies, life in the promised land, and not have to worry about a relationship with God. People love God's gifts And often see God himself as just a means to an end. Sure, we pray, we read our Bibles, we we seek to live righteous lives of obedience because we want something from God. And we think if we scratch his back, maybe he'll scratch ours. Many people have described this view of God as seeing him as the cosmic genie in the sky. And if you rub the lamp and say the magic words, he'll give you your three wishes. That's not at all what we see happening here in Moses. Moses knows that all the bounty of Canaan counts as nothing compared to the presence of God. And Moses wants this blessing of the nearness of God. He wants it not just for himself, he wants it for the nation. And as their mediator, he's seeking God's best for them. And he knows God's best is not just the blessings that God can give them. He knows God's best is God himself. In verse 16, you see this corporate language. He says, How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? Lord, I know this is your purpose to show grace to your people. He says, how will that be known? And then he says, I and your people. So he's sweeping the rest of the nation up within this request. He says, is it not in your going with us 
There's his concern for the nation. So that we, there's the nation, are distinct. I and your people, there's the nation, from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses wants this blessing for the nation, and he's appealing here to God's character and to God's promises. You see, it's the presence of God, nothing else, that makes them distinct. It's the presence of God with them that makes them holy. That's what makes them a special people. And Moses knew that this was God's plan. And so Moses prays according to God's will. Exodus 19.5, God had said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember, this is God's plan, to make them a holy nation, distinct, special, set apart from all the other nations of the earth. And and Moses goes, Lord, how will that happen if you're not with us? That's what sets us apart. God sovereignly rules over all the nations. He sets up kings and and judges the wicked and, and sets up some and tears down others. That's not necessarily unique, that Israel would go into the promised land and have military success. What makes them unique, what makes them holy, what makes them special is that the God of the universe was with them, that he would dwell in their midst. And Moses says, how is that going to happen? How is your plan going to be fulfilled to make us a holy nation if you don't go with us? This is how you pray effectively. You pray according to God's promises. You pray according to God's plan seeking that his glory would be magnified and his purposes accomplished. Moses knows the only way they can be a holy nation is if God is not just with Moses, but if God is with them as a people. Again, God shows incredible mercy in verse 17. And he gives Moses assurance of this. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. This very thing you have spoken, Moses, you want me to be with the nation. You want me to dwell among you to make you a holy people. You're appealing to my promises. You're appealing to my character, and I will do it. I will do it. This is a gracious change to the disastrous word that was initially spoken. Once again here, we find that the intercession of Moses, his prayers for the people, That was what God used to accomplish his sovereign plan, what he had intended from the beginning. Now, you would think that this would be the end of the conversation, right? Moses got what he wanted. Moses got what he needed. Okay, this disastrous word has been modified. God now will go with us, and God will be not just with me, but with the people. So we're done here, right? Not quite. Verse 18, Moses presses even further, and he makes the ultimate request. Moses said, please, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now, we have to remember, Moses has already seen God's glory. He's seen God's glory on many occasions. Again, at the burning bush, he's seen the pillar of cloud and flame that led them through the wilderness. He's seen God's glory at the top of Mount Sinai. And right now, in the tent of meeting, far outside the camp, the pillar of cloud had descended. He was seeing the glory of God now as he spoke with God face to face, up close and personal. But Moses desires more. 
He wants to see it again, and he wants to see this glory in a more powerful way, in a more comprehensive way, in a more transcendent way than he's ever seen it before. He knows there is more to God than he has beheld in the past. And so he asks, please, show me your glory. Why is Moses asking that? Well, I think the answer becomes clear when we sort of step back for a minute and understand the larger flow of this story. Remember back when the covenant was first made and then confirmed with the nation Israel? It was back in chapter 24. The people swore to keep God's law and then there were sacrifices made and blood was placed on the altar and blood was was sprinkled over the people. And then following that, remember Moses and the elders went up on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24.10, it says that they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What did they see? It's a description of God's glory. A profound experience that could have even been deadly, except the blood had marked them as holy and forgiven and set apart. And the covenant was in place that allowed them to enjoy the very presence of God and eat that celebratory meal in his presence. That moment had been the high point, the confirmation that yes, he was their God and they were his people. But in worshiping a golden calf, the people had thrown off this commitment to their God. And his withdrawal from them made Moses fear That that covenant that had been ratified at Mount Sinai was now permanently damaged, perhaps even revoked. Moses is uncertain. So Moses is wanting God to once again show his glory, to, to confirm once again his commitment to his covenant with Moses and these people. As we'll see next week, this covenant needs to be renewed. We're gonna dig all into this, this request and what happens next in chapter 34. But Moses needs to know that the covenant is renewed. He needs a sign to confirm God's commitment to them. So he says, please, show me your glory. Take away my fear. Take away my uncertainty. Take away my doubts because I know that we're sinful people. I know that we're going to screw this up. I need to know that you are committed to us and that your desire is to fully reveal yourself to us. I need to see and behold your glory. You might think this is overly bold for Moses to ask this. But God is pleased when his people long to know him, when they long to be near him, when they desire nothing less than to gaze upon his glory and to be rightly related to him, to be secure in their relationship with him. This pleases God. And so God makes this amazing concession in verses 19 through 23. And he said, In answer to Moses' bold request, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
God here reminds Moses that what he's asking for, an unfiltered, undiluted vision of God's glory, is actually not possible. It would be too much. Moses would not survive it. Although Moses met with God up close and personal to literally see his face, to directly behold his glory, the true essence of his holiness, he would die. But God agreed to do something profound for Moses. He would give him an experience that was indeed far beyond anything that Moses had experienced or seen yet. God here, in in agreeing to do this for Moses, is answering all of Moses' requests. He says, you want to see my glory? Then I will make all of my goodness pass before you. The word for goodness here has the idea not just of moral goodness, but of his beauty, his splendor. This is the shining radiance of his holiness. He says, I will make all of that pass before you. And I'll have to protect you by sheltering you. He uses sort of the the anthropomorphic language. It's not that God actually has a hand or God has a back. But he's saying, I'm going to shelter you and let you see a piece of this, but not the whole thing, so that you can survive it. But he says, you want to see my glory? Then I will make all my goodness pass before you. He says, you want to know my ways? You want me to show you my ways? You want to know if I will be faithful to my covenant? Then I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. I am the God of the covenant. I am your God. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Moses, listen, you are uncertain. You are fearful about this covenant because you know the sinful tendencies of man. But I want you to know that the future of Israel, my chosen people, depends ultimately not on their faith, not on their failings, not even on your prayers, Moses. I'm going to be gracious because I choose to. I'm going to be merciful Because I want to. It depends on my sovereign choice and my gracious purposes and my merciful, compassionate heart because that's who I am and that is what I am like. The people may have turned their back on me, but I will never turn my back on them. Moses, you want to know my ways. You want to see my glory. Then buckle up because I will declare to you my name. I will reveal to you my character. And what Moses will receive is not just to see what God looks like. He's going to hear words. Words that reveal who God really is. Words that will assure Moses' doubts. Words that will erase his fears. Words that will convince him that this God is faithful. And he always keeps his promises. And his mercy and his grace is enough to redeem a sinful people like Israel. This answer to Moses' prayer must have made his heart sing. He now knows he's not going to be held at arm's length. God would show him his glory and announce his ways and proclaim his name. A formal covenant declaration. And this is what Moses needed. It's what the people needed. More than anything else in the world, what the people needed was God himself. And God is assuring Moses that he will give himself to them. That he will reveal himself to them that he will personally go himself with them throughout every step of their journey. Moses' need, Israel's need, was nothing less than God himself. And friends, this is our need as well. I want to pull three truths out of this that you can take with you this week. 
Number one, we need the ongoing blessing of God's presence. That's what you need today. You need, and I need, God to be with us. Moses had cried out, whom will you send with me? If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Does that describe, Christian, the cry of your heart? God be with me. It ought to horrify us to think about going through life without God. It ought to cause us to tremble to think about entering into eternity without God. Sadly, we often go through life seeking not the presence of God, but the presence from God. We want the things that he gives us. And we neglect to seek God himself and to recognize that's the greatest gift. John Piper writes this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Ask yourself that. What is it that is the longing and the desire of your heart? Is it God himself? Do you long for his presence? What is it that you truly believe deep down inside that you must have? Is it health? Is it family? Is it love? Is it the approval of people? Is it financial security? Is it religious liberty and civil freedoms? Is it material things? Friend, if you are guilty of desiring the gifts more than the giver, you need to recognize this morning your need for the ultimate blessing. You need the presence of God. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a truth to believe. And many of us will affirm with our words that we believe this, but then we will live throughout the week as if there's something else that's actually most pressing. Perhaps this is what God wants to change in you today. We need the blessing of God's ongoing presence with us. Secondly, we need an increasing knowledge of his person. We need to know him. Not just to know about him, but to know him, to know him experientially, to be acquainted with his ways, his character. Moses' cry ought to be ours, Lord, show me your ways that I may know you. You see, the first blessing leads to the second. To be near to God is to know God. To be near to God, to be in his presence and have no clue what he is like, to have no clue what his will is, to have no understanding of his glory and to be ignorant would be to completely miss what it means to enjoy his presence. To be near God is to know God. We need an increasing knowledge of his person. And just like Israel, it's this relationship with God, the knowledge of God that sets us apart from the world. One of my favorite passages in scripture is in Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, 
that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. From these things I delight, declares the Lord. To know God, to have an increasing knowledge of his person, that is what matters most. Theologian G.I. Packer writes, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set for ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives, according to John's gospel? It's knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? It's knowledge of God. Let me ask you, are you content with small thoughts of God? Are you content to have a vague understanding of his ways and his character? Are you content to have a secondhand knowledge of what God is like because you heard someone teach a good Sunday school class or you read a good book or you've memorized the catechism? Are you content to have a secondhand knowledge of this God? Or do you pray like Moses, Lord, show me your ways that I may know you, that there may be a direct connection in which I come to be aware in increasing degrees the splendor of your glory. Our urgent need is an increasing personal knowledge of God. And if this is true, it ought to be something we pray for, something we seek with relentless intensity. We need the ongoing blessing of God's presence. We need an increasing knowledge of God's person. And finally, we need a transcendent experience of his glory. We need an experience of his glory. Moses prays, show me your glory. You know, we behold God's glory right now in a number of sort of filtered ways. You see God's glory in a sunset or in a thunderstorm. We see God's glory in the wonder of a newborn baby or the glory of a 65-year-long marriage. We also see God's glory in Scripture, the profound beauty and truth of these stories, these poems, the wisdom that is found on every page. But there ought to be a hunger, a prayer to see more, to see more of God. Let me ask you, how would it change the way you read your Bible if the heartbeat of your soul was the plea of Moses, show me your glory? Not just, okay, what's my scheduled reading for today? I got to get that done and then get off to work. Or, you know what, somebody's going to ask me at small group if I did the reading, so I better bust it out real quick, you know, before we have to drive over there. What if you opened God's word? And prayed, show me your glory. Maybe that's why our reading of scripture is often stale. It feels like a chore. Maybe it's because we're looking to somehow find ourselves in the story. Rather than seeking to behold God and see who he is and what he has done and what pleases him and what he is like. We open the Bible the same way that we, you know, search the internet. Like, how do I... Replace the EGR filter on a Honda Pilot, you know. Open the Bible. Okay, how do I do this marriage thing again? I need some tricks for this week. You know, some tips on parenting. I need to know how to be a good employee. Okay. Or do we open the Bible and say, Lord, show me your glory. I want to know you. I want to see you as you are. Friends, this is the hope of heaven that we've been given. Is that not only will we see God's glory in creation, and we we behold his glory in scripture, but one day... While we cannot fully experience it now and survive, 
those who've been granted the grace of salvation are destined to have that prayer answered. Not answered partially, not answered in in sort of increasing measure, but answered fully. For all of eternity, we will behold the glory of God. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Romans 8, 18 tells us that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is what we are made for, and we need it. We need an increasing experience of God's glory here. And we look forward in hope to an eternal experience of God's glory in heaven. As we'll see next week, Moses got to see a glimpse of this glory. You say, well, that's great for Moses, but what about us? You know, if we ask to see God's glory, he's not going to grab us, set us on a mountain somewhere in the Middle East and pass, pass by and sort of cover us with his hand. Moses was sort of special. Yes, he was. There was only one Moses. And I'm not him. You're not him either. So what does this mean for us? How do we behold the glory of God? What should it look like in this life? Well, here's the amazing thing. This profound and desperate need for God's presence, to know God personally, and to see his glory, this need is met for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Emmanuel, who is God with us. He came in the flesh. He dwelt among us to bring us salvation, and he now sends his spirit to indwell his church. The need for God's presence is fulfilled for us through Jesus. In addition, God's ways, those ways that Moses wanted to know, are taught to us and modeled for us by Jesus Christ, who is the living word, who fulfills all righteousness, as we heard last week. If you pray, Lord, show me your ways, God answers that prayer through the person of his son. God told Moses, I will give you rest. The promise of rest is now fulfilled to us in Jesus Christ who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You desire to see God's glory? John chapter one tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we have seen his glory. We've seen his glory. This means that for us, when we pray, Lord, show me your glory, what we're really praying is, Lord, show me Christ. Show me Christ. This is why the plea of Moses, show me your ways that I may know you, it transitions to a higher key in the New Testament. It becomes the passion of the Apostle Paul, who says, I count all things as rubbish that I may know him, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. For us, the sober words of God to Moses that my face cannot be seen becomes a gracious invitation in the New Testament that we behold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. So friend, if you sense your need for God today, a need for his presence, a need to know him, a need to behold his glory, then you must look to Christ. We sang this morning, behold our God. Carrie Wilson preached to us last week, behold my son. This is the call for us to look to Christ and to see in him all that God is and all that God has done for us. We look to Christ by faith, not with our eyes, but with our heart. We embrace the truth of his word 
We entrust ourselves to his grace. And you know what happens when we do that? God increasingly reveals himself to us. He assures us of his presence. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. As we do that, we, become to, to, we come to increasingly know his ways. As we study his word, we are conformed to his image. And as we do this, we begin to understand more and more his glory. And our hope is strengthened that one day we will see his face. Do you know him? Do you know him? At all times, the most urgent need for all people is God himself. This is what we were made for. And apart from this, all the wealth, all the success, all the pleasure and gain in this world is nothing. If you're living for something else, it's empty. It's worthless. So as we read stories like this and we we see the prayer of Moses and we understand from this story what our need is, may we devote ourselves to seeking this God, to know him, to know his ways, to see his glory. And as we do so, let's set our eyes on Christ because Christ is the gracious final word that spares us from judgment and allows us to experience all that God is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, your son, in whom all the fullness dwells bodily, the image of the invisible God, the glorious Christ, who died and rose again for sin. Lord, I pray that you would show us Christ, that as we read our Bibles, we would relentlessly seek to see him on every page. That as we engage with one another in in discipleship and counseling and encouragement and friendship, that we would together be seeking always to, to know your ways, that we may know you. Lord, forgive us for pursuing so many lesser things. Forgive us even for the way we often approach you just wanting you to do something for us. Lord, you're pleased when we depend on you and we express our need, but we know that you have made us to know you. And often we settle for less. Lord, I thank you that you have made us and that you have redeemed us. Those of us who know you have confidence that one day we will behold your face. We will experience your glory. Lord, I'm reminded of the the song that I'm sure many people here know, the song that urges us to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Lord, may we be a people who seek you above all else. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.